0: that, but be sure to have that on your calendar and plan to be here. It's a wonderful time for us since we didn't have a picnic to be able to get together with the church body and to get to know one another. And if we're supposed to pray for one another and encourage one another and we don't know who one another are, <laughs> makes it kind of difficult. So these are good times to come together and a special time to just uh, remember The reason that we celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas is to focus our attention on the Lord's provision of salvation and multiple other blessings. Also, a week from tomorrow on the 17th, we have our men's prayer breakfast. So for the men, and still last time, uh, bring if you've got a son, bring your son, and we will uh, have a great breakfast. And then after... Our breakfast time is over, then we will meet together, uh, the deacons will meet together uh, to go over the church business. So uh, that will be on November the 17th. I can't think of it. Oh, the only other announcement is that on Thanksgiving evening, which is a Thursday night in two weeks, there will not be uh, Bible class. Neither will there be Bible class on Tuesday, December the 2nd, which is when the pre-trib conference is, December 3rd through 5th. So those two... forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can each make sure that we are properly prepared to study the Word, that we are cleansed of sin, and that we are in right relationship with God for our time of study, that this is part of our personal time of worship. So let's bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Our Father, it's a wonderful privilege we have to come together to focus upon Your Word. Your Word encourages us, strengthens us, refreshes us. It resets our lives, repositions our focus away from the details of life, the circumstances surrounding us, onto uh, the eternal perspective of Your plan and Your purposes for our lives, how You are working in and through us, and, and the focus and emphasis emphasis that we should have in our own spiritual life. Father, it's too often we get just caught up with all the details of life and forget that we're here to serve you. There is a plan and a purpose, and we've been bought with a price, and we're to serve you and live a life that is separate, distinct, and set apart to serving you. Now, Father, we pray that as we study tonight, as we reflect upon these important passages and verses we're studying that you would strengthen us and encourage us. And Father, that we would come to understand their uh, meaning and their application to our own thinking and to our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, let's open our Bibles to First Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at a couple of different things tonight. We'll be finishing up with the first four verses which means we're going to actually just get to that last part of verse 4, talking about crowns, the rewards of believers that will come at the judgment seat of Christ. Then we'll shift gears as Peter does, starting in verse 5, and focus on uh, humility, focus on how to humble ourselves uh, before God and the importance and significance of that. So, with that, uh, we'll look at our opening passage, v- first four verses. The elders that refers to the office is set up by in Scripture. The most common term used, also referred to as an episcopus or a bishop, also referred to as the pastor teacher. The elder who are among, elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as episcopoi, overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but by being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And we looked at this last time, the contrast, the pairs of contrasts that Peter brings out, that the leader of the church whether deacon, whether elder, whether pastor, however we're going to define those leaders, are to serve not out of compulsion, not from any sense of, uh, of, uh, uh, of duty or that it's thrust upon him and he, he needs to do it, but out of his own desire to serve the Lord. That's the first pair. The second pair, not for dishonest gain, He's not going to take advantage of his position in order to enrich himself, but he does it eagerly, even though it may cost him time and it may even cost him of his financial resources. And then in contrast to leadership style, not as an autocrat, not as a dictatorial leader or lord as the Gentiles lorded it over those in their charge, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, again, emphasizing that that for the pastor, for the uh, leaders in the church, that the, the members of the church, the flock, are entrusted to our care, that we have are will be held accountable for how we have nourished and fed and matured the congregation, uh, being um, entrusted to us by being examples, not only in what we teach, but in what we do, how we live our lives and always remind people, pastors are just as much sinners as any of you. It's just that hopefully we're, we're trying to move forward all the time, but sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back, like just about everybody else. Uh, by being examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears, and we studied this last time, the chief shepherd is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will appear for us at the rapture, not this isn't talking about the second coming where Christ comes to the earth, but when he comes in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, that he will descend from heaven uh, with the trump, with the shout, with the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ, that is church age believers. Only church age believers are in Christ, that church age believers will be taken up into the clouds to meet him in the air. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, not on the earth. And thus we will ever be with the Lord. So that's when the Lord appears. And then there's a judgment. After that, there is the reception of a reward. I ran through this chart. Timelines to me are always good to study. After the resurrection, there's 40 days, then the ascension, and then 10 days, and then Pentecost, which means 50 days, and it's 50 days after first fruits. So it was also called the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, in the Old Testament. The church age began with the day of Pentecost with the descent of God the Holy Spirit. Never before had every believer been indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, never before had every believer or any believer been baptized or identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Never before would God the Holy Spirit have the kind of personal sanctifying ministry in the life of each and every believer that occurs today. So that began the church age, its distinctive period of time ends with the rapture of the church when we're caught up to be with the Lord in the air. This immediately precedes the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ, where we are rewarded for our service in this life, our time walking by God, the Holy Spirit, when we are rewarded for that which is produced that has eternal value. That comes before the seven years of the tribulation begins. It's depicted in Revelation 4 and 5 as the 24 elders, who are like representatives for the church. Not every church age member is going to be serving before the throne every uh, every day, every week, but certain groups will have those who serve before the throne of God in heaven. And so, those 24 elders. Are comparable to the 24 uh, groups of priests from whom 24 of the one from each of those groups, or 24, would be chosen to serve in the temple. Uh, through the and that was in the Old Testament period, so it's that pattern. And those uh, those elders cast their crowns The same kind of crown that we're talking about here, a Stephanos crown, the kind of crown that is won through a contest or a military victory, and they will cast those crowns before the throne of God, and then the throne of God at some point, will, God will have in his hand a scroll, and looking for someone worthy to take the scroll, and the Lamb of God will come forward. And he is worthy. He alone is worthy because he has the victor's crown. Uh, he won uh, his time on earth. So he is qualified to take that, that scroll, which is the title deed, to the earth. And when he does, this heavenly chorus of the, the 24 elders breaks out in song and praising him because they say, You have redeemed us. This is a great passage that is often mis- in, translated and misinterpreted, but the us, the 24 elders, can't be angels. Many commentaries, dispensationalists and others, will take that to be angels. But Christ did not redeem angels. They take it to be angels because in one ancient manuscript, and only one ancient manuscript, does it have, uh, you redeemed them. All the others, it's you redeemed us. It's not even an issue between the critical text and the majority text or anything else, older versus newer, none of those issues. It's just one text, but nobody could figure out how they, that worked, so they changed. They went with that one text. Why? Because they, could, they didn't have the understanding of the doctrine of the rapture, so they couldn't understand how angels could be redeemed, So they changed the pronoun in that one manuscript to refer to the angel singing referring to church-age believers. You redeemed them. And so that causes great uh, great confusion. But it teaches us that if they already have their Stephanos crowns before the Lamb takes the scroll and before the Lamb opens the first six seals, then that means that the Bema Seat is over and done with. Rewards, crowns have been distributed prior to this moment. So it's timeless in heaven, so it'll take place. It may seem like a long time, but in earthly time, it'll take place in just a couple of seconds. Uh, German has a great word, Augenblick. It means the blink of an eye. And all church-age believers will have received their rewards. It will seem that it goes by that fast. The tribulation ends with the return of Christ to the earth. This is all part of the first resurrection. And there's more uh, judgments that take place. Uh, These are the judgments that relate to the antichrist and false prophet being cast into the uh, lake of fire. And then we'll have the judgment on the Gentiles that survive the tribulation and the Jews that survive. That's going to be the surviving Gentiles as the sheep and the goat judgment. Surviving Jews are going to be judged. And then Old Testament saints and tribulation saints will receive their rewards. And those two groups, the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints will go into the millennial kingdom with resurrection bodies and they will serve in a ruling capacity, just like church age believers will, uh, They may have a different arena of ruling. Theirs will be over Israel, whereas ours will be over over the nations. And then the millennial kingdom ends with the great white throne judgment, which is only for the unsaved dead. And then there's the new heaven and the new earth. And Satan is cast into the lake of fire. And then there's the new heaven and new earth. And then we go into eternity. Oh, well. That was a mistake. Let me uh, see if this will... That's that's not going to do it. Yeah. I just don't want to go through all those steps making that happen. There we go. Okay. So, when the chief shepherd appears, we will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. This is the word I used a minute ago. Stephanos is the singular. Stephanois is the plural. And that refers to a wreath. This is a word that was used to apply to uh, the wreath of Christ, the crown of thorns. That's the only time and the only way it's used in the Gospels. It is not the word for a ruler's crown, as I pointed out last time, which in, the only time Jesus is said to have a ruler's crown is when he comes in Revelation 19:12. Before that, he has a Stephanos crown. He, the, the verb Stephanao is used uh, in Hebrews to describe his receiving this crown. It is a temporary crown for his victory over death, his victory on the cross, which means that Jesus isn't now a king. We don't sing to him now as the king that church age believers are worshipping because he doesn't receive the crown until uh, he returns to the earth to est- just before he returns to the earth to establish his kingdom, and then we read that on his head were many crowns revelation nineteen twelve it's used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 for athletic rewards uh, to dr- draw the comparison analogy with the third use, which is Christian rewards, such as the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4, eight and James one twelve the crown of life. These are referenced in Revelation four, 4 and 4.10, the Stephanos crowns that the elders had uh, before the throne that they cast before the throne of God. So when we see this, this is a glorious crown that we receive. It's imperishable, as uh, Peter had mentioned in uh, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, that we would receive an inheritance imperishable and that would not fade away. So last time we went through mostly the doctrine of rewards, what happens at the judgment seat of Christ in building the analogy And we looked at the athletic background in terms of the races at the Olympics, and this was at uh, Olympia, uh, Nimea, which isn't far from Corinth. Paul was uh, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He had been in Corinth for 18 months. It would have covered a time when the Isthmian Games were held and he was probably involved with that as a tent maker and so he understood the current sports sports terminology, sports language and and would have been involved there and so he uses that to communicate to the culture something that they were familiar with there was the Delphi games up in uh, Delphi where there was the uh, priestess the oracle of Delphi I showed you some pictures last time So those were where these Olympic Games were played. Now, as a reward, uh, the victors would receive a lot of different benefits, as I read last time. They would not have to pay taxes for the rest of their life. There would be a statue set up for them. They would have a, a special gate cut into the wall with their name on it. And there were, uh, and there was prize money that uh, would set them up, and so the family, his family's wife and his children, would be taken care of the rest of their lives. So they got a pretty good contract when it came to winning, uh, winning the game. Seems like we've always had as part of our culture this uh, elevation of the athlete, and that crown is the same word that the wreath that they would earn is the same. Wreath uh, that uh, that we would um, that that they would win. It was made out of something that was perishable, an, oro, an oak leaf, laurel leaf, uh, some other kind of leaf that would wither and disappear. But as Paul says in First Corinthians nine, we receive a wreath that is imperishable. There are four crowns that are mentioned in the Scripture. The first is the crown of righteousness. And this is related not to positional righteousness, but to experiential righteousness. Every one of us at the moment we trust in Christ as Savior receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Even in the Old Testament, we read in Genesis fifteen six that Abraham had believed God... Much prior to the events of Genesis 12, he had already believed God, is one way we could translate that, and it was accounted or imputed to him as righteousness. He had received this positional righteousness. That verse is then picked up by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, where he begins to teach about imputation. When we trust Christ, we receive the imputation of of, of Christ's righteousness, and on the basis of that possession of that righteousness, God looks at that righteousness and declares us righteous, not because we've done anything good on our part. So we are justified, declared righteous, by faith alone. But when we live, now that's a free gift, so that's not a reward because... Salvation is free, but rewards are earned. The crown of righteousness is something that is earned for our performance. And this is related to spiritual growth, it's related to uh, spiritual maturation. And, uh, it's rela- and And as you grow and as you mature, you become more and more focused on Christ. And we look forward to seeing him and meeting him and being in heaven with him. This is how Paul uses this at the close of his life in Second Timothy 4, 6 through 8. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. The time for him to uh, be absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. It's his second imprisonment. He's in the Maritime Dungeon in Rome, and he will be taken from there out into the countryside uh, where he will be beheaded, and that will end his earthly life, and he would be face-to-face with the Lord. He sums it up, and he uses this same athletic terminology. Part of the Olympics was not just the races, but also wrestling and these kind of contests. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course I have kept the faith. That means that he's hung in there to the end. He didn't bail out. He didn't give up on his Christianity uh, 10 years in, 20 years in, or 30 years in, or when it got really tough as he got older. He hung in there and he trusted God. He persevered. Perseverance is not a doctrine that teaches how we know that we're saved perseverance is a doctrine that is for the believer that is maturing. So to encourage us to hang in there and to not give up. That's Paul's example. And he says then confidently in verse 8, "...in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness." which the Lord, the righteous judge, notice the connection, the crown of righteousness comes from the righteous judge who will award to me on that day. He's righteous because he's, and and he's omniscient. Because he's omniscient, he knows all the details, so he will judge accurately and correctly. He won't have misinformation. He will judge correctly, and so he will judge righteously. And this is awarded to, to Paul on that day, again, a term that indicates not a gift, but a reward. Now I emphasize that because there are even in uh, our uh, Milu teach and, and uh, churches and pastors that we know, there are some that still teach that all believers get the same rewards when they go to heaven. And this is not biblically accurate. An award is something that is earned. It is not something that is a free gift. And this just is another passage that emphasizes that. And so Paul says it will be awarded on that day. That day is the uh, day of the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, that last phrase is certainly a discriminatory phrase because not all believers love His appearing. Loving His appearing is a result of learning. First, you've got to learn about His appearing. There are some believers who don't know that, don't know anything about the second coming. They don't know anything about the rapture. They don't know what they're looking forward to because they haven't been taught about these things, and that is sad. We live in an era today when there are a lot of churches that will not teach anything about future things or eschatology simply because it's divisive. It's complicated. There are many different views. So pastors just avoid it because they don't want to upset anybody. And so they don't teach it. So people don't know what God has in store for us in the future. But Paul says that this will come for those who have loved Christ appearing. Those who have grown and matured, they know Jesus is going to come back. They look forward to it. They anticipate it. They expect it. And that only comes because you've grown and you've matured in your spiritual life. And the more we grow and mature, the more we we become occupied with Christ. We focus on him. We we live this life to serve him and we look forward to his return and being with him. So this crown of righteousness it's is, is applied to someone who's grown and matured. Therefore, they are exhibiting experiential righteousness because they're growing and maturing. And as a result of that spiritual growth and maturity, they have come to uh, look forward to to anticipate uh the appearing of Jesus Christ, so that is um, that is this first crown now there's another verse that goes along with this in Ephesians chapter five verse nine and it's a bit of a textual problem, but if we go with the critical text, which is possible. I think probably the majority text is more correct, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But the passage does talk about light, so that's possible. In Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, For you were once darkness. He's talking to them. When you were an unbeliever, you were in darkness at your position. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the world positionally, we are light in the world. And then he says, we are light in the Lord, rather. Walk as children of light. So there's a distinction between our position in Christ as light and our experience of walking, the experience of our day-to-day life walking as light. And then there's this parenthesis that says, for the fruit of the light in King James and New King James, in the majority text, it says fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. But for our purposes here, the fruit here is the production that comes in spiritual growth. Whether it's fruit of the Spirit or fruit of the light, the point is that it's talking about spiritual growth. Now, I take it this is the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit then is righteousness. The fruit of the light is righteousness. That's spiritual growth, that's experiential righteousness. And that is the basis for this because it will produce a love for the appearing of the Savior. So that's the first crown. The second crown is the crown of life, the crown of life. And this crown is mentioned in two passages in Revelation 2.10 and James 1.12, which are up on the screen. Now, this isn't being given eternal life as a result of faith in Christ, because we all have that. Anyone who trusts in Jesus has eternal life. Jesus said in John 10, excuse me, John 10.10, 10, He said, I came not like the thief to s- steal and destroy. I came to give life And second, to give life abundantly. So the first life is eternal life, unending life, life that continues in heaven after we die. When we finish this life, it's not over. That's just sort of the first stage. And then we go, uh, we get transferred to heaven, we get an interim body, we're face to face with the Lord. And then when the rapture occurs, uh, our immaterial body comes with Him in the clouds. And then there's a resurrection of, of and transformation of our mortal remains into something new. Now, that kind of surprises some people. God just doesn't create our new body for us. He takes it from that which we had before. That's, at least that's the pattern we have in the resurrection in the tomb of Jesus. When John and Peter went into the tomb, they didn't see the mortal remains of a physical body there. What had been Jesus' mortal body that had died physically was the components that's transformed by God into a new body, his resurrection body, so that when he rose from the dead, there was nothing left behind of his physical uh, mortal body. And so our bodies will be the same. Now, you may have questions about some things. I do, too. There's all kinds of ways that people get incinerated other than cremation. That's usually when the question comes up. There are people that get incinerated in fires. There are people that get incinerated in, uh, in bombs and explosions. There are people who get in, incinerated over, over time for, for lots of different, different reasons. They get caught in a fire. What about those that go down like in the, on the Titanic? And their bodies go down into the ocean. There's no burial. There's decomposition and, and everything comes apart. And then there's fish and you become fish food. And we can just follow that chain out as far as we want to. But the problem is all those molecules get scattered. But an omniscient God knows where every molecule is. And he's going to bring it all back together. You know, I sometimes joke. I think, well, what about if when I die, if I'm donating certain things for um, to someone else so that they get a transplant, they get a cornea transplant, they get a heart transplant, they get a liver transplant. Is God going to pop those out, those organs out when the rapture occurs? Maybe we'll have to wait and see. See, I can just think about all kinds of strange things. Somebody walking down the street and all of a sudden their eyeball just goes. Okay, so the crown of life, this is like the category two. Jesus said, I came to give life, that's eternal life, never-ending life at the time of physical death, and to give abundant life. That isn't just a quality of life on this earth, but it will expand to a quality of life in heaven that goes beyond uh, the simple part of, of um, just eternal existence in heaven. And so this is what this is talking about. It is an expanded capacity for life in eternity. In Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, there are a number of uh, incentive clauses that are put into these report cards, these reports on, this, on these seven uh, churches, uh, which indicate there are additional rewards other than just the uh, the crowns. But in the first letter to the first church, we have the Um, letter to the Ephesian church. And in verse seven, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear while the spirit says to the churches or while the spirit speaks to the churches. I mean, if you're positive, you're going to listen and you're going to apply what I said, and you're going to uh, change the negatives into positives. You're going to obey what I said. He says, to him who overcomes, that word means to have victory. You're being defeated in one area of life. For them, they had lost their first love. And so what uh, John is saying here is if you uh, overcome and you restore your love for the Lord, then there's a special benefit, a reward. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The paradise of God is that close sanctuary of God in the heavens. And so in the new heavens and new earth, this indicates a closer intimacy with God and closer access to God and uh, benefits of eating from the tree of life. Now, they're already going to be saved. I mean, it's not repent and clean up your life and then you'll have these things and that's the equivalent of salvation. These are special rewards. In the second letter... Which is the letter to Smyrna? We have a uh, a promise in verse ten. At the end of verse ten, it is "Be faithful unto death." Now, and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, if you hang in there, if you're you persevere in the midst of persecution and opposition, and you pass the test, then you will receive a reward. That is the crown of life. And so that's a benefit there. Uh, the next, the third uh, letter is to the church in Pergamum. And there, there is the warning, the challenge to change, or I will come and remove uh, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That is the heretics in the, in the church. And then Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. So this represents some special blessing. The manna was the heavenly food that God gave to the Israelites in the desert. And so they have something there. They have a white stone. This would indicate a white stone would be given to people like a ticket stub to get into an event. And so it's possible that this white stone represents uh, access into uh, some special area. And on the stone, there's a new name, a spiritual name that's given by Christ. And no one knows except him who receives it. So this indicates special privileges for those who are obedient. Uh, there's a corrupt church, a negative church, a church of, that's about whom nothing positive is said, or it's mostly negative, that is said in um, uh, to the church at Thyatira. And at he, he says, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. So there's a lot of positives, but there are negatives. And he says, I gave, gave her time to repent But she did not repent and so there's historical discipline and that at the end he says but hold fast what you have till I come and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. Again this is the true biblical doctrine of perseverance. Then I will give him power over the nations. That's a reward to rule over the nations the Gentiles in the kingdom in the uh, third chapter we have the next letter which is to the church at Sardis. This is the one that is all negative and they are warned as well and and given an incentive to recover and to grow. It says he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I will not blot out his name for the book of, of life. And so that doesn't mean that it's possible that that They could have their name blotted out. It's just a a figure of speech called the latotes, which indicates that you're saying just the opposite. You're emphasizing the fact that that they will be in the book of life and that their name would be confessed or acknowledged or, or talked about before the Father and before his angels. And then we come to the church at Philadelphia, And in verse 12 of chapter 3, we're told, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And so there were, you go to some places today, you go to some churches and you go in and there's a room that is in memoriam for somebody or in honor of somebody else. And this was the idea in a temple, there would be these markers on the pillars and it was a recognition of that which they had accomplished. And so that's the idea behind Uh, verse 12. This is another form of a reward. And then you have the uh, last church, which is the Laodicean church. And again, uh, Jesus says in verse uh, 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant uh, him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So it's a position of elevated authority. So these are all the different types of awards, but we're just looking at the, at the crowns. Since we were Revelation 2.10, I decided to take us through that for a quick summary. James 1.12 also talks about this crown of life. So Revelation 2.10, they persevere in the midst of testing which where they could lose their life. And in James 1.12, James says, Blessed is the man who endures testing. So both of these are related uh, to testing. Uh, For when he has been approved, that's the word dokimos, the verb is used in the passage on the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, talking about that for which we are awarded. Uh, When he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, not every believer develops a real love for the Savior. Uh, Most do. Some have an infantile love, a love of a baby. Some have a more mature love. I think this is a more mature love because they have endured temptation, and they have grown and matured, and so they receive a crown of life, an expanded capacity to enjoy their, their heavenly life. The third crown is the crown of glory. Well, before I move on, I wanted to cover something else. So this crown, that is the crown of life, is related to the believer's success at enduring especially adversity, the hostility that may take their life. We live in a, a time in our nation's history that many of us, most of us, never thought we would see. We see outspoken hostility to Christians. We see uh, riots and mobs charging the homes of newscasters who are conservative. If you didn't see the news just last night, there was an Antifa crowd. Antifa DC is the group that posted the addresses of Tucker Carlson and his brother and... Uh, a number of others, and Coulter and some other conservative uh, conservatives and so that other groups would storm their houses and they stormed tucker carlson 's house, his wife was home alone. She heard all the commotion they 're banging on the door, trying to knock down the front door to come into the house she 's inside she locked herself in the pantry called nine one one and the police came but when did would we have thought that that if we publicly voice our opinions on Christianity or on our conservative beliefs that there would be groups that would want to hunt us down and to kill us. And this is what's happening today. It's going to get worse, I believe. That's, we know that it'll get worse in the tribulation, and I think that uh, it may get worse before that, and it's better to be uh, forewarned. And we may face this kind of adversity, and it it really challenges us. We we live in an America where most Christians live a comfortable Christianity, and they've never been challenged to live a difficult testimony, uh, where it may cost them something. We we think of I can't remember her name now, but the Pakistan Pakistanian woman who's a Christian, who because she gave water. Uh, to a man that uh, I believe was a Christian that she, uh, whatever the purpose was, she was thrown in jail. And they wanted to give her the death penalty because she had, def- as a Christian, she had defiled the water. And they just released her uh, from that death penalty a week ago, but they're keeping her in confinement right now because the last time somebody tried to help her, they were, they were killed. The price is on her head for a, a huge sum of money for people in that culture and so the chances of her surviving and they won't let her leave the country so it's very difficult how would we handle that kind of a thing but this is what happened to the apostles they gave their lives not for a myth they gave their lives for the truth that they knew not, it wasn't true because they knew it it was true because it had actually happened that Jesus had been raised from the dead And so we can go through the list of the apostles. They gave their lives. They were true physical martyrs for what they believed about Jesus Christ, and they will receive the crown of life. James, the brother of John, was beheaded in Jerusalem around uh, A.D. uh, 44. Uh, Philip, who was the evangelist who led this uh, The Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord and also ministered with his daughters in the area of Caesarea by the sea was uh, arrested and he was brutally uh, whipped, flagellated uh, prior to being crucified. Matthew took the gospel to Parthia, that's modern Iraq and Iran, Persia area, and he was Uh, killed with the sword around A.D. 60. James the Less, we don't know a whole lot about him, but according to tradition, he was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and then beaten to death on the ground. Andrew uh, was crucified on a cross for three days. And during that time, he witnessed he gave the gospel to everybody who went by. Andrew was Peter's brother. Also, He was a fisherman. Peter was finally arrested in Rome, and there he was brutally whipped and flagellated like our Lord. They were going to crucify him, but he didn't think he should die the same way the Lord did, so they crucified him upside down. That must have been a much more miserable death then to be crucified right side up. Thomas was took the gospel to India. There's a rich tradition among a group of Christians in India that can trace their lineage all the way back to Thomas. And he took the gospel there, but he gave his life when someone drove a spear through him in India. Uh, legend tells us, or tradition tells us, that Jude was crucified in A.D. 72 that bartholomew was beaten to death with clubs Uh, john had been condemned to uh, being boiled alive in a cauldron of boiling oil but he escaped and later he died a natural death paul was beheaded in rome by nero barnabas was stoned to death by jews in thessalonica Mark was dragged through the streets of Alexandria by his feet and then burned to death the following day. Luke was hanged on an olive tree in Greece. Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. That's just a list. The only one who died a natural death was the Apostle John. They all gave their lives for the gospel and they will all receive the crown of life. Third the crown of glory. This crown is the crown that we are studying here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. It is a glorious crown that is awarded to pastors and shepherds of congregations who faithfully study and communicate uh, the word to their congregation and who fulfill what this passage says, that they are examples to the flock. For those, they will receive the crown of glory. That means that a pastor teacher has to be faithful in his preparation for ministry. We have, we live in such a tragic generation today because, and this isn't just true for the Christian community. I think it's happening in other communities as well. But the tradition among Christians has been that, that for the most part, pastors would come to an understanding of the gospel. Young, they would come to an understanding of uh, their gift as pastor-teacher. They would spend many years uh, in ministry in, in study, pre- in preparation. I have been told that in the eight, as late as the 1820s, that it, you would not be considered for ordination in the Anglican Church if you had not memorized all 150 psalms and if you were not working your way through every psalm at least every three or four weeks in prayer. What does that do? If you're rehearsing that, all those verses in your mind that much, the depth of your understanding of, of the word and of what God is doing is is incredible, it's profound it it is, we don't see men and women like that, I counted a a privilege to when I was young to have known men from my grandparents' generation who had a grasp of the word and memorized the word so it just saturated their souls in ways that I don't see leaders today that even come close to those leaders, and part of that, I think, is because of the increased secularization of our culture, where people think grow up. I know I certainly did, thinking, "Well, what we do on Sunday, what we do at Bible class, goes there, and then the rest of it just live like everybody else." That there is that the whole of our life is to be in service, uh, service to the Lord, and so we don't have young men were are making decisions to train. I remember when I was sitting in Bible class when I was in high school, and I'd get called on quite a bit, and I thought, you know, maybe the Lord has given me the gift of pastor-teacher, and I need to do something about that. And I worked summers at Camp Penile as a counselor, which gave me lots of opportunity to give kids the gospel and to teach the word, and realizing that, you know, that that really thrilled me. That was just, what could be better than teaching the Word? And I went through a time in college when I um, I thought, this is an incredible responsibility. I don't want it. Let's go find something else to do. And I often tell people that who think, do I have the gift of pastor teacher? I said, well, if you have the gift of pastor teacher, uh, if you can do anything else, go do it. Because if you're a pastor, you have to that has to be clearly what God has gifted you to do. So go do something else if you can go do it, but if you can't do anything else, if there's a passion in the core of your person to teach the word and to minister to people, then that is what you should do. And I came to understand that more fully as I was about a junior in college. And, and But I had even set my course of study to study history, to study English, to minor in education. Uh, I had set that course of study thinking that's going to prepare me to be a pastor. I didn't go into other areas of study because I, I always had that in the back of my mind. So there was that constant preparation until I went to seminary. So we have to have young men who are faithful in training And it doesn't stop with graduation at seminary. I've often heard people say, well, they listen to me and they say, you know, you ought to teach in a seminary. Well, no, I shouldn't. The word seminary comes from the word seminal, which means a seed. It is not the full bore plant. It's not the full mature oak tree. It is the acorn that is going to grow into an oak tree in a pastor's life. The sad reality is that too many men who go to seminary never increase their knowledge beyond what they learned in seminary. See, what happens in seminary is you're given those seeds that you are to fertilize and nourish and read and study and develop over the course of your life. In seminary, you'll go through Romans in one semester. But when you teach it, you have the wonderful luxury of taking a couple of years to go and really digging into and taking all those tools you've been given in seminary. And I've heard very arrogant men say, well, I don't need to go to seminary because I already know all that doctrine. Uh, what's so sad is that a lot of what you learn in seminary has nothing to do with book learning. It has a lot to do with trusting God to pay your bills while you're spending all that time studying. Because when you get out, you're going to be in a congregation and that congregation's going to have budget deficits. And that congregation's going to need to have money to build a building. And that congregation's going to need to be able to pay your salary. And you have to trust God for it. And if you don't learn to trust God when you're in seminary, then you're going to have to learn the hard way when you become a pastor of a church. So seminary is, and we're losing that today. All these young men, I, wanna, I don't want to suffer any. I don't want to give up anything. I just want to get on the internet and do it all at home. You're never going to produce the kind of quality pastors doing that that what they call old school would produce. Now, that doesn't mean that doesn't happen. I know some pastors who are incredible, and they were self-taught. They were autodidacts. A couple of weeks ago, we studied about Granville Sharp. Granville Sharp was an autodidact. He taught himself Greek, but those are few and far between. And you find too many arrogant young men who say, well, I can do it because so-and-so did it. Yeah, but you don't have half the IQ that so-and-so has, so you can't do it. So we have to have this training, and the pastor has to continue it beyond seminary. I can't tell you how many times I've gone back and taken myself back through first sem- First year Hebrew texts and first year Greek texts, and read through systematic theologies and uh, different systematic theologies and work through uh, histories of Christianity all to to uh, solidify in in my soul and in my thinking that which I learned in seminary. A pastor has to be faithful in his own spiritual life it 's not just about academics and getting information but it 's about your own personal relationship with God and a pastor has to be faithful to feed the congregation and his motivation needs to come from his own relationship uh, with the Lord. So all of this is part of the reward that comes the crown of glory to pastors who stick with it, faithfully serve the Lord and faithfully serve the, the, the flock that God has given them. And then the fourth crown is the victor's crown. I take this from 1 Corinthians 9:24 to 27. And that's where Paul uses just the analogy of running the race. Not all who run get the crown, but we need to run uh, as those who will win. And we need to each run our life. The competition isn't against others. The competition is in terms of fulfilling the mission or not. And those who reach the... Uh, finish line are those who receive the victor's crown. And so these are just some of the rewards. I think we're just going to be blown away by the complexity of the crowns, the rewards, all that God provides for us. We're just given such a skeletal uh, sketch and outline of what will the judgment seat of Christ will be like. And ultimately, it will be a time of rejoicing And a time of celebration because of what the Lord has done for us. He's not going to be judging us harshly. He'll be judging us graciously, and we'll be surprised at how how well we've done. Um, I many times in my life I've been encouraged as I read through Hebrews chapter eleven, and you get down to the end, and it's talking about these great men of faith that were examples in the Old Testament. Now. I hope you've gone through my Judges series, but uh, if you haven't, you should. I think it's still one of the most significant, culturally relevant series I've done. But you go through Judges and you realize that those men who were Judges, uh, men like uh, Barak, men like Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, if you, all you, we had to go by was the book of Judges, we would think they would were absolute spiritual failures, because they had some incredible flaws. But they're all listed in Hebrews 11 as heroes of the faith. They fulfilled their mission at some point. And so God uh, mentions them in Hebrews 11. I don't know about you, that gives me great hope that somehow I won't be a complete failure when I get to the judgment seat of Christ. So uh, God is going to judge us very, very graciously. So that brings us to the end of those first four verses, and then we get into the uh, next section. And rather than starting with that tonight, I'm going to just wait and we'll get into this uh, next time where we can look at the, uh, the totality of, of, uh, of what Peter is teaching about humility and about how to show that we are humble, learning what it takes to be humble before the Lord. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded and to reflect upon your grace that you have given us so much just from your goodness, your kindness, your generosity. You have supplied us with everything necessary for eternal salvation to be restored in fellowship with you, to be able to commune with you, to talk with you in prayer, to Think about you and your word and to have God, the Holy Spirit, bring these things to our mind, that we are uh, elevated above the circumstances and the difficulties and the challenges of living in a corrupt, fallen world with corrupt, fallen people, and that we can live above that and we can have a stability and a peace and a joy in our life that is unknown by most human beings simply because you provide that for us in your goodness. Father, we pray that we might hunger for your word, thirst for your word, that we might passionately desire that we to serve you and to glorify you in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen.